Hello, Dan. Hello, John. How are you? Welcome back from Portland. <clears throat> Thank you very much. How did your talk go? Oh, it was a it was a very fun talk. Yeah. You know, usually an improvised talk like that. Um, I kind of have a <clears throat> I have a, a way of doing it, which is you know, I think about it for a couple of days, throw some ideas around in my head. Are you having a beer? No, Lacroix. Oh, Lacroix. I always open a Lacroix at the start of every single show with you. The coconut. Amazing. One. Yeah. Oh, the coconut flavor. It's gotta oh. be. Yeah, of course. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Right here on the top of my desk here, I have a Kroger lemon lime seltzer water. Ooh, very good. <clears throat> here we go. Mm. Oh, so fizzy. So almost having a taste. Uh, but but I don't really start composing what I'm going to say until about an hour before when I go for a walk. And then I kind of am running through, you know, like, well, there's that anecdote. There's that anecdote. How would I stitch those together? Right. What's the, you know, what's the general point of the thing? I'll, I'll think of a couple of like laugh lines and I'll be like, how am I going to remember that particular laugh line in the heat of the moment? You know, it's like a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a piece it together, stitch it, Frankenstein it together, uh-huh. but it's gotta be, it all happens like in that last hour. Otherwise, like if I compose a speech in my head the day before, it'll be completely blasted apart by the time I go on stage. Oh yeah, I can see that. So I have to do it in that last little bit. And it's a little bit of a tightrope walk because it's, it's always a question of like, how do I wrap it up? You know? Like I've given some speeches where I didn't really stick the landing Mm. because you've really got to bring it all back home, you know? But this speech at XOXO, I, I, it was just the right blend of like, I didn't have a plan in the last hour I came up with a plan and then on stage, it kind of just went, it, it, it flowed in such a way that at the end whether or not I stuck the landing almost didn't matter because the the whole, and I think I did, but the whole speech had gone well. So I felt good about it. And it'll be up on, online at some point and, and you can all, um, everybody can re, uh, watch it if you're inclined and judge for yourselves. Was this your second or your third XOXO? I've been to three. Okay. Uh, and the first one, I was the musical guest, but I also did a live uh, rendering of the Roderick's Rendezvous, right? The sort of talk show bit. And then the second year I was part of their storytelling. That was the year you and I right. were both there. And then this year I was one of the speakers, one of them. I mean, they have quite a few speakers. I remember the first year that you were there, I wanted to see you. And I just, I, I was just a member of the audience, just enjoying your, uh, your show and then the second, the second year, like you said, that's when we got to, to finally meet. Yeah. We went and had some gluten-free lunch. Yeah. We palled around. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. My daughter was there. Yeah. That was nice. It was nice. Um, so yeah. So but it went well I- and you, you feel like, you feel like this came across. Now, I have a question for you. There's a lot of people I'm, I'm kind of like you in that anytime that I've given a talk or anything like that, I try to do no preparation until the last possible moment if that's the morning of perfect if it's the flight over 
That's a little in advance, but I, I can run with that. But what about when you interview? Because, uh, you know, Roderick's Rendezvous is an interview type setup. If I remember right, you had you had a stool and the other the woman you were interviewing had a, was on a, a stool also. Yeah. Is that right? Was that am I that's remembering right. the right time? That's that's correct. That's correct. It was Chelsea Kane, the um the writer and now comic book artist or comic book writer. Cool. Chelsea Kane. Uh I do no preparation for interviews beyond being familiar with the person. Right. Because I don't know. It seems like an interview should be a conversation. The the people that go into interviews, I, I was watching an interview the other day on, uh, I don't know what it was, but it was a commemoration of 9-11. And the interviewer was talking to a lot of the people, the armed forces people that had were first responders to, not to the World Trade Center, but the, like there was a, a woman who was a F-16 pilot mm. at Andrews Air Force Base. And she and her, she and another pilot were the first F-16s in the air um, when Flight 93 was still airborne. Really? And they didn't have time to put any weapons on her plane because there, and she was describing the, all the bureaucratic army up and down. She, she could have been scrambled a long time before, but they were just waiting. They had a tower of authorizations they had to get, right. Had to go all the way up to the chief of staff or whatever. And so by the time they, but they're rushing to get her plane, like gassed up and armed and ready to fly. And they didn't have time to put any missiles on it. So they sent her into the air with her, uh, with one other pilot. And the mission, I guess, was if they, if they, if they intercepted that jet that was headed to Washington, they were meant to kamikaze it. Really? And she was a young pilot. Um, and all of a sudden she's in the air, like streaking towards this jetliner, which is streaking presumably toward the white house or the, the Capitol, and completely prepared in that moment in her early twenties to just take that plane out. Uh, she said her, her, uh, her, I think the, I think the other pilot was the senior pilot and he said, I'm going to take a, I'm going to go for the cockpit. I'm going to aim at the cockpit. And she said, I'll take out the tail. Well, that's a heavy story. Yeah, really. And she's a major now and she's very composed and she's very, you know, I don't think you get to be a, a major in the Air Force without knowing how to give an interview where you don't reveal too much, right? She's, she's very much a military person. But she's being very candid in this interview. And the interviewer is, I don't know who he was, but he's, I, I, I recognized him. He's, he's a, a public radio or CNN type of person kind of vying for the, the um, Charlie Rose space. Sure. I was going to say it almost sounds like a Charlie Rose setup. And he looks, the guy even looks like Charlie Rose a little bit. <laughs> and he's sitting there kind of, you know, in that posture of like, I'm really listening to your story. <laughs> And she gets to this point where she's, 
where she says, so we took off and we didn't have any missiles on the plane. Well, uh, everybody watching was like, what do you mean you didn't have missiles? Yeah. is like, so that means you were going to what? Right? Like, that's the moment. The heavy, heavy moment. And the interviewer's like, so what were you thinking that day? Was it a sunny day? Really? And she's very composed and doesn't do the eye roll. set the whole thing up. Yeah, set the whole thing up. She doesn't do the eye roll. She's like, yes, it was. It was the skies were clear up to 20,000 feet. And, you know, she gives her 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 barometric (laughs) pressure readings. Right. And he's like, what were you thinking when the jet crashed into the Pentagon? She's like, um, it was, I was, I I, uh, I actually, actually all emotion went away and I became like single minded in the performance of my duties. And okay. So you were, we, we already have touched on the fact that you were on a suicide mission. But now you're saying that all your emotion went away. They just blew up the Pentagon. You knew people there and your emotions went away. (laughs) Tell us more. (laughs) And the interviewer is like, so what were you wearing that morning? It's just like, you idiot. How did you get this job? How did you get this job? And I feel that way about a lot of uh, interviews that I watch where the, you know, the person is ostensibly a professional and they've worked their way up through some kind of ladder of, uh, of interviewers to get this gig. And then eventually comes around to like, so you were prepared to crash your plane into the other plane. She's like, that's correct. And he goes, Hmm. Well, what was going through your mind when you're, and it's just like, I wanted to go through the screen and throttle the guy because we never really did get to sit with her in the moment of like, you're going to crash your plane into the other plane in order to protect America. And you are, and you are, you were not only prepared to do that, but like saw that as your duty. So many things to explore. Um, in that and just sort of sit with that and give her the space to like talk about it as much as she could within the fact that she's still in the military and you know, what a human moment, what an American situation. Like Mm -hmm. she didn't do it. So we can never know if she had, she'd be, you know, one of the greatest American heroes. I always suspected that flight 93 was downed, by the air force and that the, the whole business of the, you know, the like, let's roll. Yeah. Uh, story just sort of felt, I, I, it just felt too, even in the moment while we were watching TV during the thing, when flight 93 was still in the air and every, and the newscasters were like, there's one more plane out there. Maybe there are dozens of planes. I remember saying to uh, the group of people that I was, well, it wasn't much of a group of people. It was my mom. Um, Like, there's no way that that plane is going to get to Washington, D.C. Yeah. 
they're going to they're going to shoot it out of the sky. And what I didn't know was how difficult it was in peacetime to scramble armed jets uh in time. You know, like I figured I figured National Guard units kept F16s with sidewinder missiles just sitting on the tarmac. Right, they're fueled up, they're ready to go at any time. Up, steam coming off of them. Uh but that's not the case. But still well, what, it, what is the case? Like, what, what's the situation with that? Because you, you always imagine that they are right there. They're sitting right there. They're ready. What is that word? Why am I thinking of the word sortie? A sortie is a, like a mission. But aren't they like, aren't they ready? Aren't they like sitting out there? And then they, they've just got a, a bunch of pilots sitting in the, in the room on, basically on a smoke break. Yeah, you know, no. waiting to go, and then when it's their time to roll off uh, duty, they go off duty, and another team is walking in as they're walking out, and you know, with their sunglasses on, Top Gun, everything ready to go. Well, apparently, no. Um, I know, feel like the- we'd be getting caught with our pants down. Then I think that would have changed that since nine eleven. I bet that's the way it is now, though, right? They've always. They've I don't got know. The, I don't know. Be. I'm not. I'm not sure that they. I'm not sure that the Air Force or the National Guard says i i haven't researched it i mean during the cold war there were bomber crews on standby all yeah. the time as a i feel like know, we should go a step air further and we should have these things in the air at all times at all times we got you know, at I, least a dozen f-16s over every state just circling I feel, like, I feel like that would be very expensive and people would be mad at the money that it cost my my sense is that they go on training flights but the missiles that they carry on training flights are either full of smoke bombs or are made out of cardboard. And the real missiles, the, the armed missiles, are kept in a ammo dump somewhere far away from the airport, right? Because you don't want your bombs sitting right on the tarmac because if they blow up, then they've blown up your whole airport. Yeah, you don't want that. That'd be bad for the runways. Bad for the runways. But still, Flight 93 and the way it ended, and I don't mean to at all you know, cast aspersions on the, on the let's roll people on board the plane. But there seems to be to me, at least a missing piece, which is the plane is at whatever altitude it is. Presumably, you know, if not cruising, it was at cruising altitude had mm-hmm. to have been, mm-hmm. but even if the terrorists had gotten it down to 20,000 feet, it's like up in way up in the sky. And then the, you know, the, the passenger's, rush the door cut to the plane is a crater in the ground. And there's a lot of time that would have transpired there. And I'm not, I'm not in, I'm not sure that I, that, that um, I've never been completely satisfied with the, with the idea that these guys rushed to the door. The terrorists were like, they're banging on the door. Let's just plummet. That's just not how sure long that, would it take? I don't, I think we've got some pilots listening. Yeah, for sure we do. But how long do you think it would take if you're, cause as you, as you were talking about this, I pulled up the, uh, the grand source of all knowledge, Wikipedia, and it, it's talking about a, a cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. That's right. 11,000 meters for our uh, listener in uh, Ireland. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, you have to think that, that, I mean, I know that when, when you're descending for a landing from your cruising altitude, 
that's a that's a process. And that's what you're saying, right? That that's there's a, there's a certain amount of time that it takes, unless you were to just be nose down, hurtling, uh, to the ground. Is that what you're saying? That there's there's well, yeah, but even nose down hurtling to the ground from thirty thousand feet takes some time. Yeah, and and during that time, I mean, you would be. I mean, it would take time just to change the the uh, attitude of the plane from level flight to nose down, mm-hmm. you know, that's not instantaneous either. Right. And it just didn't seem like, I mean, maybe they, maybe they rushed the cockpit and then there was a battle Royale within the cockpit. Yeah. So two scenarios, right? Either they couldn't enter the cockpit in which case the terrorists still had control of the plane and they plummeted the plane straight into the ground just as like, well, they're out there and they're going to kick down the door eventually. So let's just make a hole in the ground instead of even doing some terroristic thing. Like where's Pittsburgh? Like what's the, what's the, what town can we get to fast to do more terrorism or the, um, the passengers did breach the cockpit door and there's a battle Royale. And how many terrorists are in the cockpit at that point? Four tops. Um, and they're armed with box cutters. And there are at that point, as many passengers on the plane as, as there are, because once they, once they kick down the door and are fighting in there, um, it's not like some passengers in first class can be like, well, I'm going to wait this one out. Mm. You know, everybody's engaged at that point. And so at a certain point, they would, you know, be in a position to overpower the terrorists. And then every single person in the world knows to grab the stick and pull it back. Now, maybe the plane is out of control at that point. Maybe it's inverted. Maybe it's in a fatal stall. But all of that is part of the story. That would be in the, that would be in the black box Mm -hmm. that would be in the, you know, the cockpit recordings, you would hear all that and it would be reported. Like they breached the cockpit, they fought, people were yelling and the plane went into a flat spin, Mm -hmm. but there, but there doesn't appear to be any of that. It's like, let's roll and then hole in the ground. So I've never, you know, I feel like there's something more to that story and I've never been, a, I, I, you know, the let's roll story is so, um, so American and such a good ending to, I mean, not a great ending, but like, um, that, that felt like the one victory in that whole scene where at least these, it gave, these val- it gave us, it gave us some heroes in the midst of. Uh, otherwise pretty bleak kind of a situation. Yeah. These valiant people recognize that their fate was sealed and rather than go passively, they fought, you know, and, and because that plane, because that group of terrorists had hesitated and didn't get control of the plane on the schedule, on the timeline that they were supposed to, there was this additional time, this lag in their plan Mm -hmm. that enabled the people on that flight to be aware of the other attacks. And I think even the Pentagon, 
the people on the Pentagon plane weren't aware of the World Trade Center. You know, everyone, those other three planes, all the passengers were, uh, you know, were just, th- their knowledge was confined to what was happening in the plane. And right, I think right, right. Each, each group was like, what is happening? Where are these guys going to land? Yeah. So flight 93, yeah, they had the, they had the foreknowledge and, um, you know, and it's a, it's like, just like the woman, just like, uh, the major now major who was prepared to crash her plane into the, into the jet, you know, they, they behaved as you would expect Americans to do. They saved the Capitol or the white house. Mm Mm-hmm. The, the, the crazy other thing is that the, that the, the pilot, the F-16 pilot, her father was a pilot for America, for a United Airlines. And she had, and who flew that route and she had every expectation that her father was piloting the jet. Hmm. That's insane. Yeah. And then the interviewer is like, so <laughs> how do you blow that? What did you have for breakfast? Now? <laughs> So in answer to your question, no, I don't no. ever, if I'm interviewing somebody, I do not go into it with any <laughs> questions in mind because it's going to just, it's going to flow and you're going to find something pretty fast in any conversation where you're like, what? Tell me more about that. And if you don't get to the, if you don't get to where you thought you were going to get, you're, you're going to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Which is the, I think the hallmark of a good interview, but nobody's calling me based on my interview skills and asking me to host a public television program, which they just did. They had you riding around on a bus or something. Mm. Weren't you interviewing that? Yeah. So they are calling you and asking you to to interview. Mm, Yes. Okay. Yes, you're right. That was, (laughs) that was a different kind of, you know, that's not a regular regular program that was that, was, a, that makes it even more special i guess so have you seen any of those no are they online apparently they're they're online now the visit seattle website has videos of me giving you tours of seattle on the on the my flatbed truck and um i haven't watched them because as you know i don't consume my own media output is that is there okay so this is this is interesting i've heard this look at that Right there. Mm-hmm. There you are. It's your face. You're smiling. There's Smile. your, look at that. Okay. So I got to describe this since it's, this is a, apparently an audio program now. Uh, who? Ours? Yeah. Yours and mine? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at a picture of, I, I guess you could call it, it's not quite a flatbed truck, but it, it looks like it's a modified truck it's a larger truck that would normally you know whenever you see like a big white truck just driving around and you you know people are loading equipment in and out of it that kind of it looks like that big but white it's, truck. it's painted the part that would normally be the the box on the back of the truck it's been removed it's been replaced with what looks like green scaffolding uh, in a way and it's it's got a, like a platform like a little stage and it has a desk that says hashtag hey seattle on the desk with a rolling chair behind it and a microphone on it and then it has a bluish sofa couch next to the desk which is the traditional talk show format yep and it's parked in front of 
some kind of arena that says CenturyLink Field on the outside of the arena. I'm guessing this is the thing that you were driving around in. Uh, the truck, yes. Yeah. The truck went went around town to various locations. And then I would get up on the truck and I oh, would Oh, you interview. weren't in there? You weren't doing the interview while you were driving around? No, that oh. wouldn't be safe, Dan. That would be, you You wouldn't authorize that. You're, you're a safety-minded person. I would have no. loved to have seen that, though. No, that would be too noisy and too dangerous. No, the truck, the truck went to five or six or seven or ten locations around town. And uh, then I would interview a person or people who had either a connection to that area or who were prepared to answer questions, you know, sort of general questions about what to do in Seattle. You know, there, if you're, if you want to know where to get the best seafood in Seattle, there's not really one place you can park to talk about it, but we mm-hmm. found a place and parked there and said, Hey, here we are in front of the pile of clamshells. Where do you get good clams in the city? Oh, you know what? Here is a, uh, Hey Seattle, what is the best way to visit the islands near Seattle? When should I go? There's these are all on YouTube now. Yeah. So go there. Where and look are at- the best spots for swimming? Where's the best place to get oysters? Mm-hmm. And you've never you've never heard any of these? Nothing? No, no. I don't uh I would be it would be excruciating to me to to even to even see the YouTube page without even clicking on them. Um, I have asked a couple of friends if they would watch them and tell me if they're okay. Look at you. No, this is you. You're sitting there. You're in the, you're in the desk. There's this, the sofa. Yes. We've established that it's me. No, but I mean, I'm, I'm seeing you right now. I'm seeing you and you're wearing, uh, it looks like a, a gray, uh, jacket. You've got a coffee mug. Uh-huh. You're in front of a beach. Uh-huh. You've got a pocket square, you no yeah. tie, no tie. You look great. Your hair looks great. Look at you. It um, you look so there, amazing. There was, I'm putting this in the show notes for sure. There was a a, a, a stylist, a two stylists. There was a, a wardrobe stylist and a um, and a hair and makeup. Person. <laughs> they were so worried you would be left to your own devices to do your own hair. Well, they, they had a staff member come. <laughs> this is this is how these this is how these things are done, and. Um, and the the uh, the clothing stylist was a woman I knew from show business, and just Seattle, right? We you know we were we occupy similar circles, and they were I think they were charged with the task of making of dressing me and and doing <laughs> my grooming so that I looked like myself, right? They, <laughs> which is which is to say what we think you look like. Yeah, they had a photograph uh, for reference of me that was taken during my campaign. And they said, we want you to look like this. And I said, well, I dressed myself that day and combed my own hair. So I'll come dressed like that. And they were like, well, bring a few pieces of your own wardrobe that are really signature, but we'll provide the wardrobe. I was like, hmm. All right. So I showed up and the, uh, the woman doing wardrobe had put together like a whole rack of clothes that were new and tried a bunch on, fitted me with things. The, the people at the agency decided they did not want to tie. 
because they wanted it to be cash. And wait a minute, was there a tie the first day? No, I don't, I don't remember. Um, but you know, but like casual, cool was the, was the vibe they were going for. And I just went along with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just like, I am your blank slate. So, uh, and at the end there was a pair of shoes that I really liked. And I was like, I'm keeping the shoes. Really? What can they say? How can they say no? I mean, they, they, uh, there were people that tried to say no, but then it went up the, up the ladder. And eventually I got to the person that said yes. Mm. (laughs) But that's an example of a, of a thing that, you know, I was proud to do. I'm proud of it. I, and I, and I very much hope that it turned out well. And I haven't really made a big effort to, to retweet them or to social media promote it because I don't actually know if it's super good or not, but I I'm incapable of watching it to, to say if it is or not. So I'm waiting for enough people to say, and this is often what happens. I wait for enough people to say, Hey, that's great. Before I feel like, okay, well, the consensus seems to be that it's good. So I will start to, I'll start to promote it. But you uh, didn't get a sense that, that it was good or that wasn't good. Well, because the concept was very short snippets, I think, Mm. you know, where's the best place to swim in Seattle? Hey, Seattle, here's the best place to swim. Bleep, blop, bleepity, blop. And then cut, right? Like, I think that the segments are, are fairly short. So they they are very short. Yeah. In the course of a filming day, we're generating a lot of material and I don't know it's, it's very, the quality of it, I think, is very dependent on the editing. And in, in my firsthand experience, there was just a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that could be cool if you, if you, if you edited it really well. Um, and a lot of stuff that's like, I hope they don't leave that in. (laughs) So I didn't really have a, I didn't walk away from it having a super good sense of, I think this is true of people that act in films too, right? They show up on set, they go, behold the kingdom. And then the director says cut. And then they go back to their trailer. And so when the film comes out and they go to see the film, they have no sense of what the film is going to be. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're astonished. Well, to I hear see all the, the time that actors uh, are, are saying, you know, I, I don't, I don't ever watch any movie that I've ever been, or I never, I never watch that. Yeah. I bet it's very unsettling to see your face 30 feet high, uh, in a room full of people all watching your face 30 feet high, because when you're watching a film, you're in the moment of it and you're not conscious of the fact, I think as a viewer, wait a minute, that's a, that's one person's face and it's, it's as tall as a building. But if that's your face and you're not just like, what's Indy going to do now? Yeah. But you're there going, that's, you know, like my face is huge. I think it would freak you out. The few times that something I've done has been, you know, like recorded. I, I, it's very, it's very challenging until you're used to it. But I hear people saying that all the time when they email me like about the 
stuff I do with podcast method where they're like, oh, I don't like the sound of my own voice. or I don't, I don't like the way I sound. It's one of those things I feel like if, if you just, once you get used to it, used to seeing yourself on camera and used to being aware that the way that you think you look or the way that you look to yourself in the mirror in the morning when you get out of the shower is actually very, very different from how you really look. Once you get past that, same thing with your voice. When you hear your voice recorded, you're like, that sounds terrible. It's not me. Who's that jerk? Right. Until you realize that, no, that is actually you, and that is what you sound like. I think it's the same thing. You just have to like get used to that. But it's hard. It's hard to get used to it. And or like you'll watch and like, oh man, I didn't know I had that stupid mannerism. I didn't know I did that. Or like, oh my god, what was that? Why was I looking that way? I should have been looking the other way. What a jerk. That's how I feel when I watch anything. Yeah, I don't. I mean, the, whatever. Yeah, have you whatever. ever watched any of your performances like later that have been recorded or anything? No, I hate. I hate. To how do, do you? How do you know that you're like? How do you get better then if you don't watch it? I don't. No, you. I have, don't get you, better. You are getting better, though. I don't get better. I get worse and worse all the I time. I don't know. I think if the concert that you would put on, like I watch those, uh, those my, you know, my favorite stuff that I, there's not a ton of stuff of you like performing live on YouTube. Believe me, I've tried to find everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, before we were starting to work together, I had to do as much research as I could. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And my favorite of all of it were the performances that you did. I've told you this, that you did for the, uh, the Seattle radio station there. Oh, um, right. Yeah. The, well, K- the, those are KEXP. KEXP. Those are good because they're really well filmed and well recorded. Yeah. Right. It's very different than a, than something that somebody put on a, you know, like a, late nineties video camera. I'm putting these in, in the, uh, in the show notes so that you can, <clears throat> all the listeners can, the show notes will be at five by five dot TV slash roadwork slash four, three. Mm-hmm. They want to go and, and see those, but they'll all be there. I highly recommend these things. My, um, the only ones that I've watched, the only things that I've watched online are <clears throat> sometimes I will forget the lyrics to a song. And when I had the full rock band and I would, you know, we'd start the song and I'd go, Hey, what a one. I'd have the first few lines of it or sometimes wouldn't even have the first line of the song. And the, but the band would already be in full flight. And rather than stop the band, sometimes I would just go, Whoa, 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 Whoa. And stop, 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 stop. And everybody go plank, plank, plank. And (laughs) you know, they all turn and like, what? I'm like, don't remember the words. And, you know, it's like, ha ha, right? But sometimes I would say, you know, keep going, keep going. And the band would just keep playing the tune. And then I would say to the, to the audience, I don't remember the words. And then the audience would yell the words at me. <laughs> but it's very hard to hear an audience yelling words at you while a live rock band is playing. <laughs> so then I would go, what? And then they would you know, different people would yell the words and then I would, you know, I'd have to like try and figure out what they were saying. It wasn't meant as a gag. It was just, that's how it turned out. When Sean Nelson was in the band, he usually knew the words and I could walk over to him and say, what the fuck is the first word? You know, kind of whisper to him over the top of the band. Right. And he would go, you know, Herman, 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 Herman. I'd go, right, 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 right. And then, and nobody was sure what was happening in the audience. But after Sean left the band, 
I didn't have that resource. And if I went to Eric Corson and said, what the hell are the words? You know, he plays the bass in a, in a complete bass player headspace, right? Like he's in the dream space. Of yes. Yes. Bass. So I would go, what the hell is the first word? And Eric would go, are you talking to me? <laughs> he wouldn't remember. He didn't know the words or if he did, he didn't remember them in the moment. And so, yeah. So I have watched some videos online of me um, going, what the hell are the words and the audience shouting them back because those are very short videos, you know, hopefully like a minute or less. And for some reason, I think that's funny. I think I, I can watch that without going like, Ugh. but as soon as the, you know, as soon as the band launches into a song, I mean, I don't listen to my own records and those I spent weeks and weeks making as good as I could. So I don't know. I don't know why that is. I do. I will read my own writing without a problem. And if, if people, um, if, if people transcribed roadwork shows, I would read them avidly. It's something to do with the ears. Mm -hmm. No, I get it. I mean, a lot of people learn by, by listening and it's hard for them to, to learn through their eyes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like they don't, they, they don't get it off a chalkboard. They don't get it off a book. They want to hear it and see and you know and watch watch it being done but i'm the other way i mean i i i would prefer to learn by reading and listening to uh listening to a lecture is i i find lectures melodious and i tune in and out of them i enjoyed lectures in college but mostly as doodling opportunities mm-hmm. I never took notes in a single lecture. Never wrote down a single thing that a professor professor said in the in my whole school career. I didn't either, but I could I could remember it. Mm-hmm. I knew people that always took notes, and then yeah. sometimes you'd get those classes where they would require you to take notes, or they'd want to see you your notes, or you'd have to include your notes with a. Oh my god, those are the worst. Uh huh. I couldn't even, I couldn't read my writing later. So it was pointless. Blech. Well, sure. And those people where you're like, can I see your notes? And they have these fabulous notes. Yeah. Oh, wow. I never understood because for me, writing, I, I had these classes that were sort of prerequisites to take uh, architecture classes because there was a while there where I imagined I might be an architect. And in high school, these classes were just called drafting classes. Uh-huh. So we were always doing things like isometric projections, and they would they would give you like a like a Phillips head screw that you would have to then do isometric projections of this. It would be a pic a drawing of the screw, but you would have to then do like the isometric views of the screw: the side, the angle, the front, the bottom. Things like that. And I guess this was teaching you the basic principles of drafting, which leads to architecture. Of course, now it's all done on a computer, but AutoCAD was like a brand new thing at, at this time. We had a, there was a computer in the architecture part, you know, part of the, <laughs> of the school. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I vividly remember for the first at least month, all we did were letters and you would have to you would take your sheet of paper and you would 
practice writing, you know, first might just be the letter A and you would practice writing letter A and this, if you've ever seen architectural drawings, they all have that amazing uh, printing style on them where the letters are wide and, and they're, but that's actually taught. You're taught to, to write in that kind of style and, and not to use stencils or anything. And so you would write it on this piece of paper and when it was perfect, then you would lay a sort of transparency sheet of paper over it, which you would have to align with your T-square and have the perfect right angles and everything so that the paper's aligned perfectly and you're always drawing on a perfect 90-degree angle. And then you would sort of trace what you had just drawn on this transparent paper. And and then you would feed this into the blueprint-making machine. Yeah. And the blu- now, what is a blueprint-making machine? Well, it's... There's... um. The I guess there's the the paper that you're this transparent paper is called vellum, yeah, and it's uh, the blueprint machine was a very if you've ever seen those sort of line printers that are very they're big and yeah. they uh, and they're you know you see so you could feed I guess in theory these very large. Uh, full like architectural drawings of like a whole house. You could feed that into it, but it had this, I always remember vividly the, the way that ink would smell and the, you know, the rotating drum inside of it always had a little bit of a squeak to it because this thing had been around for, you know, 30, 40 years and you would feed the vellum into it. And I guess it used some kind of, it, it would be insulting to, draftsmen and architects everywhere to call it a f- carbon copying or a photocopying process because it was much more than that. I don't, I, it was more like developing a photo in some way. Right. Um, and it would, it would then print out in a, in essentially a blueprint version of this thing that you had first drawn on paper and then traced on vellum and then fed into the machine. If you handle a blueprint, does it make your hands blue? No, no, no. Oh, okay. Um, All right. And and th- when people think of a blueprint, they're usually imagining a blue page with white uh, drawings or writing on it, and that's, that's true. That's what I'm imagining. Yeah, that's that's true. But I think there's a way to uh, to do it so that it's a white uh, or a light sheet of paper and darker text. So sometimes we would do it that way, and then that would be what you would turn in. So I had learned to do these stencils and this writing. That is this very cool looking kind of writing, but you're not, you're not writing fast with this. You're writing very slow. The, you know, each letter might take you, you know, 10 seconds to do a letter, just one letter to make sure that it was perfect, you know? Yeah. And so the only way that I could write that was legible was if I, if I wrote it in, in my draftsman style printing, anything Uh. else, my cursive was. I, you couldn't read that. It, it was it was terrible. And was I your never cursive half half cursive half printing, or what? Did you maintain a steady cursive? That's a great question. I I definitely would break out of it, and sometimes it would be certain letters would be regular letters, other ones would be would be cursive. I think it looks like a, the scrawlings of an insane sort of fourteenth century, you know, opium addicted. That's sort of what my script just, looks like just a little yeah right half in I, half out I, I my my handwriting devolved into just a series of glyphs <laughs> um a long time ago and and i feel like 
some of my letter formation is very childlike, childish. Yeah, sure. And some of them are just, I mean, like, like if I'm writing quickly, my R's are barely, um, they're barely a lump. Mm. Like a lot of, a lot of my letters are just suggested because you see, you know, you see the letter B and maybe it's a K, maybe it's an H, maybe it's an R at the end. But in context, you're like, Oh, back, right. He's saying back. But if you just took the word and, and held it up to the light by itself, it'd be like Bork, Borg. <laughs> you, everything has to be in context. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, but I can write very small. So I'm one of those. Oh, that always that, creeps me out. Like in the opening scene of that movie, Seven. Yeah, seven. All the tiny little, tiny, tiny little printing in the notebooks. So back, uh, and a lot of our millennium listeners won't have any understanding of what I'm about to say, but I used to carry in my wallet a little laminated piece of uh, yellow lined legal paper, mm-hmm. but but cut, <clears throat> cut so that it would fit inside my wallet. So not very big piece of paper where I had meticulously written the phone numbers of every person I knew Mm -hmm. in tiny, tiny, tiny. Smart. And it was double-sided. So I would write, you know, I'd write phone numbers on both sides and it included like what at the time were the very first pins that I ever had, like the pin to my, um, my first ATM card, but I wouldn't identify it as a pin. Like Like a crib sheet. It's a little crib sheet. I would, and I kept, because, right, our phones did not have memories. Right. Our, we did not have our friends' phone numbers in the thing. They were either memorized or they were on a little piece of paper. And I don't know how other people handled that. I don't know how you handled it, for instance, all of your phone numbers that you had to know. But I had a, I had a wide social circle when I was in my 20s. I knew a lot of people. And it was important that I have their phone number because if I was going to like try and rendezvous with them, my, my social circle was not such that I saw my friends all the time. Sure. So it was like, oh, right, I have to have Kristen's phone number, but I also have to have Kristen's friend's phone number. So there were a lot, and I still have some of those uh, phone number lists because I am an archivist. And boy, the, the, you know, I was so proud of them because the writing was very small and, and very legible. And I consulted my little list, you know, every day, Mm -hmm. all the time. (laughs) Some of the numbers that I called regularly, I still have memorized. I don't remember a lot of things, but I do remember, um, you know, Sean Nelson's phone number from 1998. Right. And obviously, you know, you remember your childhood phone number, but, uh, I kind of miss my little sheet because right now I don't know anybody's phone number. I know my mom's, but if I were to have to call, if my phone died and I needed, and this happens, right? Your phone dies mm-hmm. and you need to call somebody close to you, important to you. No idea. Yeah. No idea what their numbers are. And that's a, I used to probably have 25 current phone numbers memorized at any given time. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely had a handful of numbers memorized. 
growing up? I mean, all the, the important numbers of like your family members and, and your close friends, they were memorized. And I, I remember someone could just tell me a number. I could meet someone and we'd be talking like, oh, yeah, give me a call. Yeah, what's your number? And they'd tell you. And I, yeah, okay, I got it. Yeah, right. People, 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 people. How, how did we do that? Well, <clears throat> how did, how was it that you could, and because we didn't have, first of all, we didn't have area codes back then to worry about. So it was only seven numbers. Mm-hmm. And I'd often. Our, yeah, that's right. Our minds were, were geared to remember phone numbers then. Yeah. I've often read that at seven numbers that somewhere they did a, uh, a, 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 some kind of study or something where they determined that seven is easy for the human to remember. That in the seven digits is easy to remember. But what was the thing in, I think it was the generation right before ours where they had like, le- like letters in them and they would say a word as part of the, like so Alabama four, seven, two or something like that would be your phone number. What was yeah, that? My mom still thinks about um, Seattle phone numbers in that, in that way. <clears throat> and, you know, she'll say things sometimes like, oh, you know, it's sunset three, two, four, oh, four. Yeah. And those, you know, what, what that meant was sunset was S-U. And <clears throat> those were numbers, right? The letters, the letters corresponded to numbers on the phone dial. Right. People right? who people who maybe have never in our, our listeners who have never looked at an old phone, there would be there would be numbers. Yeah. Emblazoned on the buttons and they're still there. If you look at your iPhone, number two has like ABC under it. Right. So in Seattle there was Meridian and there was Van Dyke and there was Waverly. I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of prefixes and what they represented, I think, were neighborhoods. Um Franklin and so forth. And I think those, I think the phone numbers that we have in Seattle, for instance, are still, they still correspond to those, um, like 322 yeah. is a prefix that we use in, on Capitol Hill. And 322 corresponds to the word East. Um, right. EA, it's EA2. And a lot of the Capitol Hill or a lot of the downtown, um, or not downtown, but central. like Right, so the, the, the full, in other words, the full uh, word was simply a way for you to get the first couple characters from it. The word was just there to help a person remember it. Yeah, and to, yeah exactly. and to know, like, from the telephone prefix, you could know the neighborhood you were calling. Right. So if somebody said, oh, yeah, I'm at East 27474. You would know, oh, East 2 is a certain part of Capitol Hill, whereas East 3 is is slightly south of there or something. And that's also true of old license plates. Old license plates, the first two digits on a license plate, told you what county Mm -hmm. the car was registered in. And so... They stopped doing that. I think at a certain point they got they had too many, they had too many prefixes, or people people would move and they'd want to keep their old phone number or something. But like growing up in Anchorage, there was two seven two, there was two seven seven, there was two seven six, 
And I remember when I first heard a phone number from 276. And I was like, 276? What is that? Every phone number I knew. Oh, 279. My dad's number was 279. My mom's number was 277. My uncle's number was 272. And those were the only prefixes I had ever heard. Mm-hmm. And then I had a friend whose whose phone was 276. And I was like, 276? Weird. It sounds weird. I never, I never once heard a 278 um, or a 274. So at least Anchorage in the 70s and 80s, the, the worlds that I lived in were confined to like three or four prefixes. But now, who knows? I mean, all the cell phone prefixes all are like up in the nines or something. What is your, what, what's the first digit of your cell phone? Or our, our area code? No, not your area code, but your, your number. Uh, seven. Seven, right. I think they're all... I think they're all tall digits yeah. for cell phones. Maybe, maybe not, but, but, um, I gosh, I remember just, we, we had, uh, we had, we had a new area code at one point. We went from essentially all of Florida really right. being on kind of like one, I guess, or South Florida was on one area code and like then South and Central Florida, they changed the area codes. And in Orlando, we wound up with 407. Mm. being the main one and that sounds weird yeah and then florida uh south florida rather became uh like a 305 area code and but then there was this dividing line between different parts of the cities where if you were on one side you got one area code and if you're on another and you got another and that's very common i think in in the bigger cities yeah new york used to all be 212 right and then it then they put a new one on there and i think that was pretty destabilizing for people well, I, I know people who lived in Philadelphia where I grew up, and it was always 215 there. And then they right. came out with a new, I don't know what it, what it is. I'd probably have to look it up. It was like a 678 or something, something terrible. Yeah. And I'm like, how could, how could you? And, and, and this was around the time when iPhones were coming out. And I knew someone who was living in uh, Philadelphia, and they had gotten a new, they got their iPhone, and it was in the crap uh, area code. Boo. I'm like, how can you stand it? How can you live with yourself now with that? It's just well, a shame. When you think about it, it's kind of amazing that that system, which was devised at the dawn of tele- telephones, <laughs> yeah. has persisted un- unto this day. And maybe, I mean, the the seven-digit number, if you, if you are correct that it's, that it's an, a, a number of digits that's easy for people to remember, mm-hmm. Um, but there's no need to remember numbers anymore. No. Uh, I wonder how long it will last because our social security numbers are, are, uh, you know, they have that little two digit little blop in the middle, bop, 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 blop, blop, bop, 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 right? It's basically a, it's a seven digit phone number with two additional numbers sandwiched in between. And maybe phone numbers are headed there. Bop, 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 bop. I'd be all right with that. It's, it's curious, right? The, I, I think you're probably more up on this than I am, but, you know, URLs mm-hmm. are a pretty ungainly system that clearly were devised by com- 
computer science people who probably didn't have any, like they didn't have the, the sense that they were going to be so widely used by so many, many people. Yeah. Because it's like uh, bleep, blop, blop slash or bleep, blop, blop dot blop slash blop slash blop slash blop slash blop. I mean, that's just weird. Um, you know, and, but you know all about IP addresses too, right? Oh, and you know, number, 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 colon, number, number, colon. I don't know what the hell they represent, but they're paths, aren't they? They're just like, well, mm, the, you're talking paths in the URL for sure, but IP addresses are, I mean, you know what? Thinking of them as paths maybe isn't a bad way to do it. They're tubes. They're just, yeah, it's, it's, it's tubes. I mean, the, it's, it's fascinating the way that, the way that IP addresses and domains and things like that really came out of it. Because I remember back in the, in the very, very old days, you know, you, you had different machines on the network and the, the machines were usually named based on their role. So you would have an FTP server. So if, if your domain was you know, roderick.com, you'd have ftp.roderick.com. And if you had a, this brand, a gopher server, you'd have gopher.roderick.com or most likely like gopher.cc for computer center, .sci for science, .roderick.gov or whatever it was uh, back, yeah, back in the old days. But you because different departments, you might have an FTP server for the medical school, for the law school, for the obviously for the computer science school. So that because so if you wanted to FTP a file, transfer a file, file transfer protocol, you would, of course, connect to the FTP server at Rutgers or wherever it was. And uh, and so clearly you would have to name that something that people could kind of guess. And also what's the FTP server for, you know, downloading the latest distribution of FreeBSD? Well, they, they have it here at FTP.whatever.whatever.university and they would have mirrors and things set up. And so when the web came around, it became popular. WWW, of course, World Wide Web, that, that was a physical server. That's where that convention of putting www in front of something came from is that it was a it was a machine it was really a, that was one location that was a physical computer wow. plugged into the network somewhere and <laughs> yeah yeah and that's that's why that, that's where that came from and the same thing for mail servers and things like that mx but and this, so why did www end up becoming the place well because it, it it wouldn't make sense from from this kind of thinking it wouldn't make sense to just type in johnroderick.com that's that's the domain that doesn't that's not anything specific about the domain what 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 within the context of the domain is it that you are looking for oh well i will i'm I'm browsing the web, which is a new thing. I have this thing called a web browser and not just links on the command line. I have like a like mosaic. I can look at a web page in a window on my computer and I wouldn't just type in johnroderick.com. Like that, that's meaningless. That's not anything. What, what nice. do you want? You want the web server. Well, with the web server nice. convention is we've all agreed it's www. So you yeah. are connecting to a web server. And the fact that there, there are good reasons why you might want to preserve this these days with things like like when you have you know dns and you've got multiple you've got load balancing and other things why it still makes sense to have a www but it it's a convention that most people don't know 
why we have it or really where it came from or yeah. why it even exists. And right. yet it people will perpetuate well, the website should be a www. you know. Well, it doesn't it doesn't need to be anymore. We've grown past that, but there are still some legitimate reasons. But the IP address is every every computer on the internet has to have its own little uh, street address and that's that's what the IP address is. But the way that you describe it as as sort of pass makes sense to me because there's different levels of IP addresses. There's blocks, they're distributed in 250 blocks of 254 technically uh, usable IP addresses that uh, that you can do with different net masks and routing tables. And I mean, my job, I don't remember any of it at all. It's completely gone from my brain, but I used to like be setting up routers with IP tables and things like that. Like that was, you know, like, well, we've got this router here and we got this, we've got a class C network, so we've got to divide it this way. And here's a subnet mask and there's still people that can do all that. What's interesting to me, and I, and I think this is at the, this is at the core of some of my criticisms of our current sort of interstitial, uh, web tech life, Mm -hmm. our online lives, let's say, is that these systems were devised by uh, computer science pioneers and devised initially to communicate with one another um, in 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 a technical language. And unlike almost any other technological innovation mm-hmm. in our in recent history the the like um guts of the of the architecture are still not just like visible but the lay people who became the ultimate users of these systems are still expected to use the or are still expected to to um not just use and understand these architectural systems, but like they're, they're, they're not embedded in a lot of ways. They're right up in front. Um, you know, after airplanes became popular, it wasn't necessary for the passenger to understand, uh, how the airplane worked to see a diagram of even the, the notion of lift, right? Or to, or to know what the pilot was saying to the tower. Like you got on the airplane, you sat in a comfortable chair, somebody brought you a cocktail and then you were where you were going. And when skyscrapers were built, when, when we first got, when we first developed poured concrete or steel beams, um, if you got in the elevator, it wasn't necessary that you understand the, language that the elevator was, you know, the language of the people who built the elevator and who operate it or the, you didn't have to understand. You were shielded from all of that. Well, and, and shielded because the presumption is that you're not here to understand the building. You're here to use the building Mm -hmm. and you have other things to think about. Uh, And that's why we built this building. So you can go in there and do business or do whatever you're doing. But the, because the internet became, widespread during an era when uh you know it was it was a youth movement i guess as well as a as a technology mm-hmm. and engineering remained it remained necessary to be a good engineer 
a lot longer than most other technologies because the process of putting everything we needed to put online was such a Herculean process, right? It wasn't just like, here are some airplanes, rich people can fly on them. But every single person (laughs) in the world suddenly became aware, like, I want my own website. I want to blog. I want this. And so the, the aperture of people that knew how to do that stuff was so small and remained small and even now remains small, even with all the millions of people who are doing this work now. If I say I want my, because johnroderick.com right now is down and it's because Squarespace something. And I wrote Merlin about it and Merlin said, oh, it's something, something. You just need to something and then something and then send an email to somebody and then something, something. And if you go on to somewhere, you need your password. Do you remember your password for something? And I was like, uh, no. And Merlin said, let me try some. And then he came back and he was like, I found the password to something. Now you just need to log on and something, something. And well, johnroderick.com is still down Mm -hmm. because I was, he lost me at the first something. And yet I should have johnroderick.com up, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, but the, but the, the people who are building the internet and who work within it have a somewhat of a blind spot because, I mean, even Merlin, who knows that I'm a ding-a-ling um, and who is patiently wor- walking me through this process, he assumes you know, like a fundamental assumption that I'm going to walk through this, uh, the, this series of steps that to him are more self-evident than they are to me. Because when he says, well, log on to blank and go to something, something, he knows what the, he knows what blank is, mm-hmm. how it functions. And then I'm going to follow some path of breadcrumbs to something, which he also knows what it is. And you know what it is. A lot of our listeners do. But I don't. It's because I don't care. Right. Because it isn't important. It's not crucial to the work that I'm doing. But it is crucial to be able to turn the lights on. And it's and so as a consumer, right, when I walk in my house and I turn the lights on, it, I'm not being asked to follow the pattern. And if they don't work, I call a, I call a plumber, mm-hmm. you know. And, and then the plumber comes and says, that's not, this is electricity. And then I call the electricity. I, I think though, I think though that that's simply because the, this aspect of computers is not interesting to you because I think if it was interesting to you, I don't think that it's not important. I think that it's oh, just oh, not it's interesting. Absolute, it's absolutely important. But, but in the, in the um, evolution of our online lives, mm-hmm. To a place where it is truly um, a consumable product. Right. These, it's not, I mean, it, uh, like I actually know if my light switch doesn't work, I know what to do because mm-hmm. I taught myself how mm-hmm. I can, I can find a, I can find a short, I can wire an outlet. Um, it's a physical process. It's not a, you know, you can actually follow the wires and you can troubleshoot it. The, to to understand computers in the way that that is still necessary mm-hmm. to put up your own website 
requires uh, re- requires more like brain real estate <laughs> than than I'm willing to um, to farm. Sure, to it. no, I, I I get that, but it isn't like a lot of other consumer products in that I increasingly you need to, you need to be online. And I, and I, 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 I've discovered this with Jonathan Colton and, and the moment I realized it, it was, uh, it was a devastating moment. I may have talked about it before, but obviously Jonathan has incredible songs, first of all, and incredible songs that really resonate with people online. So, Jonathan's success and why his success was so astonishing to everybody uh, eight years ago and why it was very difficult for people to, to duplicate, right? When Jonathan first came out and was like suddenly an enormous phenomenon online mm-hmm. and he had no profile outside of the internet, right? like nobody in the music business had ever heard of him, <laughs> right. but here he was like a musician yeah. and suddenly a big deal. Uh, Immediately, people started to try to duplicate his success. Oh, all you have to do is put your music for free on the internet. Bleep, blah, bleep. And, it, and nobody else could do it. And it was seen at the time like, well, this is the future. But it turned out it wasn't the future. It kind of only worked for Jonathan. And a lot of that has to do with, his, with his, uh, the quality of his music. But in one of our earliest conversations... He said, well, yeah, I was a computer programmer, so I designed a site for myself and I put it in so that you could download my music at any um, resolution and you could pay for it or not. And if you wanted to download all my music for free, you could. And if you wanted to pay uh, for lossless flack, you could. And, uh, and every day I put a new song up and every, and I blah, 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 blah. And my site's not beautiful but it's functional. And I realized that I had, I had none of those abilities. Like I, and, and he could do it cost effectively because he did it himself. And mm-hmm. for me to, to build that architecture at the time would have cost $30,000 because people were saying, Oh, I'll make your website. Right. Sure. Grand. And so I was, I was completely behind the eight ball. And I imagined what my life would be like if all my songs were online and if I could charge for them. And, and I still imagine that here we are 10 years later and I still don't know how to put my music up online to have people buy it or to have it be free. My website, johnroderick.com isn't even up right now and I don't know why. So there's a huge, there's a huge barrier to entry. And a lot of it is that, that, we haven't consumerized it yet, totally, right? We're trying to monetize the internet um, way ahead of, of consumerizing it so that the architecture of it is just invisible to people, which is where it's, it will inevitably be there. Um, but nobody wants to know about it. Like, and, and, it's, and, it's, and one of my criticisms, of course, is that the rise of the computer engineer has sort of made the computer engineer a kind of culty figure like, Oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to pay extra stock options to get this hot young engineer. It's like engineers belong in boiler rooms. (laughs) 
engineers, <laughs> engineers belong in windowless offices. They are not rock stars. Rock stars are actual things. Rock stars are people who play rock. First of all, they do it very well enough to be stars. And that requires that they be somewhat sexy. And <clears throat> computer engineers aren't. They, they are engineers. Build things. Shut up about it. Um, and the, the problem is that, the, that somewhere along the line, the idea of making the internet truly a, a, um, a sort of effortless consumer arena where people could just go and they didn't have to, they didn't every time they plugged in their phone have to sign a new user end agreement mm-hmm. and they didn't have to. Well, that's because we're, we're so litigious here. <laughs> well, yeah, but like. That's really still a thing. We're still signing, signing like 50 contracts a year that we don't understand in order to what? In order to protect Apple from what? People are going to sue Apple because their phone doesn't, their battery doesn't work anymore or because I told you, you'd be, if you paid attention to this garbage the way I have to, the things that people sue Apple for are mind boggling. Well, and, and I think that's, uh, again, like evidence of the fact that we have not systematized mm-hmm. a, a consumer, like a standard. And, and when phones, when, when cell phones first came out and the, and the premise was, cause I remember there was this, there was this like fraught moment at the, in the early days of cell phones where it wasn't clear exactly how this system was going to work. Did you buy the phone? And then pay for minutes or did you rent the phone and get unlimited minutes or did you lease the phone? Yeah. And were you, I mean, at first there weren't really these two year contracts. It was sort of like, Oh, I mean, do you just follow the phone company that has the best deal? And keep your phone and change your plan or, and then it, then it, 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 it like codified into this system that we're still living under, which is phone companies are bastards. You sign a contract with them. Why is that? There's nothing about owning a phone that requires a contract. It's just that they decided that was the way they were going to monetize it. Sort of like the way they're trying to monetize the cloud where it's a system of indebtedness or indenturedness to companies that don't have any motivation to do a good job for you. Like if you, I, I remember a conversation I had with a woman at Verizon where I said, listen, this is the worst customer service in the world. And I'll, you know, I, I uh, I'll never use Verizon again. And she said, you are right now on the phone with me trying to get out of your Verizon contract so you can go over to AT&T. Why do I care? She was, you know, she was some, I had asked to talk to somebody's supervisor and then I'd asked to talk to their supervisor. So this was somebody pretty far up the chain. And I said, life is long lady. You don't know if I'm coming back to Verizon or not. I could be on AT&T for two years and decide to come back to Verizon, but I'm not going to do it now. I wouldn't go back to Verizon if my hair was on fire and Verizon were the only company that had a, a bucket of water. And she was like, goodbye. And it was such an inversion of the, of what had formerly (laughs) been the business model, which was the customer's always right or keep the customer satisfied. And there's no reason why cell phone culture didn't evolve a different way. 
right? That, that, um, that phones are, are monetized entirely differently, you know? Uh, but that's the way we chose. And we're still living again in this world where, where it's litigious because people don't understand. There's nothing, there's nothing to sue about, you know, but the idea that you could sue Apple just because they're rich and because you, because what exactly? I mean, Apple right now is capable of taking away your entire music library that you've spent years assembling. Yeah. They could take it away in, a, in an instant for no reason. And you would have no recourse. And if you, and if you wrote them and said, you bastards, they would say, thank you for writing. Uh, you're in the queue. The queue is 85 years long. Like, and that is just a, that's just a thing that we've allowed. Mm-hmm. We allowed it to happen because at no point along the way, did we have any recourse? And from an engineering standpoint, like engineers are principally concerned with how that's going to work, not concerned with the ethics of it or concerned with the evolution of it. Nobody says, Hey, rock star engineer, is this beautiful or is this mm-hmm. um, ethical? They say, can you do this? Can you build this? And the engineer goes, yes, I can build it. And not only that, I can make it beautiful. But there was never a class of people involved who said, I mean, you know, if, if the skyscrapers of 1920 and 30 were built exclusively by engineers, they would be hideous, right? There were other considerations that ended up making the Chrysler building. It is both a marvel of engineering and also an aesthetic marvel. And a lot of the work that went into it, a lot of what makes it beautiful and iconic was just expensive to do. It performed no function other than to say, look at the beautiful thing we made. Yeah. Come to New York city. (laughs) And that costs money. Well, nobody in contemporary American business, like the Wharton business school no longer says make something wonderful. And the, and the principle of attraction will, I mean, and that's not true, right? Apple did make beautiful things and that is why people adopted their products. Mm-hmm. They, they did make them beautiful, but uh, in a way, I don't feel like they made them functional, which is kind of a weird, it's a weird inversion of what I was saying. Like there's some there's something missing that I feel is palpable and I make these with the internet as, as a whole. Yeah. With not just the internet, but all of the portals to the internet, like the whole system right now is missing a crucial component. And when I argue, when I argue about engineers, I get a lot, obviously a lot of letters um, written on, on blueprint paper mm-hmm. from engineers defi- def- defending their, Um, On the vellum and then put through the machine. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Defending their world and defending their, the logic and arguing with me about the logic, about my logic. But there's, there's some crucial part of this whole system that we're all now like absorbed in. It is a, it is a legitimate portion of our world. Some people, a, a much larger portion of their world. And it's missing, it's missing something crucial at the consumer end where things are made elegant and effortless. 
And when I say effortless, a lot of the letters I get from engineers are premised on kind of what you just said. Like, well, if it's not interesting to you, then that's why you fail. Or, you know, why should it be effortless? Because blank, blank, blank. And that's. Well, I didn't say that it shouldn't be effortless. I, I agree. Um, but like I, there's, a, there's something prehistoric about it still. Oh, I, I completely agree. And it's what's always been interesting to me in this whole space that you're talking about. I remember when it first, when the, the internet was a new thing and people were like, I, I, you know, I need more than just a fax machine. I, I need to get my, I need a, I need a website. I have to take my business online. Uh-huh. And they didn't really know what that meant, but they knew they did. They knew they didn't have it. I didn't know what it meant. I just knew I didn't have it. They just, yeah, they didn't have it. So the, I I was the company that I was working for, and this was maybe the uh, mid nineties. They, I was like, uh, they were really excited to have me because I understood the internet at a very Uh deep level, but I could also like talk to people. And so they were, they'd used to do these like seminars uh, where they would like teach you how to here's here's how to use Microsoft Word, and uh, so they are you in the bath? Uh, no, I'm I'm just emptying my coffee pot. Oh, because I'm getting on an airplane right after our show. Really? And I don't like to leave no, uh, like a little bit of coffee in the coffee pot when you're going to be gone a few days. <laughs> Because gross, just, just in the muck. Now, if I was if I was talking to Merlin, he would say, "Don't tell people you're going. Now they're going to rob your house." No, we've been through that here. But yeah, we've been through that. So I I think uh, I think you know that this company was excited to have me because I knew about the internet. They said, "Well, we want you to make one of these seminar things for like for teaching people like what what is the internet and how how do people like." get a website and it what what is html and it was it was like if if you saw this seminar today in 2016 you would assume it was for geriatric patients people who were really just been under a rock forever but back then this was like business people were flocking to these things and we were doing them a lot. Like I trained two or three other guys at the company on how to do them. And they like started traveling the country, giving these things and they'd be filled with hundreds of people. There's like, like we were answering their questions about like what email was and how all this stuff worked. And I always expected that we would come that, that as, as, time went by the internet would get easier and easier to use back in the old like the way that computers have gotten better and easier to use in general and that's probably a bad analogy to make i like your airplane one and the building elevator one better but if you think about today and i'll maybe we can use the car one right you don't really need to know anything at all about a car to own a car you need to know how to drive, but you don't need to know about the physical workings of the car in any way. Right. You, you and don't, learning to drive is a thing that a lot of people can do. It's not, it's not like 
it's not effortless, but I mean, millions of people do it, right? It's exactly like a car. You're exactly right. A car is very complicated. You don't need to know anything about it. You put, you put the key, you may not even put the key in. You, you press this button on the dashboard, the car starts. Right. Oh, well, it didn't start. Oh, you need to put your foot on the brake pedal and then push the button. Oh, okay, thank you. Car's going now. Thank you. That's it. And it, wait, wait, I'm done with the, the car. The, the, what do the I do? I'll push is, the button again and you're done. And that's it. The like, that's is the even, car. is even more apt because not only do you not know, need to know that much about the car, you don't need to know that much about the roads and how the roads are constructed. And the laws, you don't, every time you get in the car, have to sign an end, of, end user agreement. <laughs> right, to drive You're it. not going to sue somebody if your car goes off the road. Right. And you don't, you know, like the, the roads are free to use. You're, you pay for it with taxes. Mm-hmm. And that's somewhat of an of a invisible process, too. Like at every step of the way, it's invisible. And the, and the construction of the of the U S highway system and the construction of automobiles was always designed at every step of the way to make it, to make the process more invisible. Like the first thing they did was take away the crank that you had to turn in order to get the motor started. Right. That's exactly right. And every single step on the whole way of cars has been making them easier. And pretty soon you won't even have to drive the car. You just That's go right. into the car and you won't even have to you do anything more than like, oh, yeah, take me to work. It doesn't. What's the address to work? It just knows where to go, knows how to get there. And that's I mean, we're not that far away. We're we're, we're very, very close to that. And yep. everything about cars has gotten better and easier. You don't even have to press the lockdown anymore. You walk toward the car, touch the handle and the car unlocks. You can start the car by pushing a button. All everything, even the idea of like there's a key you've got to put in the right way into the dashboard and turn it. <coughs> not one click, not two, click, but three clicks while you're giving it gas. That's done now. You don't even have to do that. You just press a button. Everything's gotten easier with cars. Everything well, has gotten better. Nothing is more easier about the internet, really. It's not that much better. Listening are going to say that's not true, and the internet is getting easier, and eventually it will be like this. But there's never been a thing where the where the intermediate era was so long. You know, we from, still from have to, difficult to incredibly easy. Yeah, from yeah. just from from adopting a series of standards where the purpose of the standard because it seems to me still that there's that there the the burden of entry is as high as it is on purpose a little bit. You know, and I'm not talking about it being sort of a reverse system of um planned obsolescence. It's more a series of planned exclusivity. Like there's there's not a ton of motivation on the part of engineers to make it easier for dummies. Right. Because that, maybe, but there's maybe the attitude of, well, we don't really want the dummies on here anyway. Hmm. Or just as if we made this easier for dummies, what would our job be? Right. And so there's this, you know, I mean, it's wonderful that there are so many JavaScript coders i'm glad is it (laughs) i wish they would go into a cave and i wish it would be plato's cave and they could live in there happily (laughs) oh yeah but 
but the idea that I, even as tech as I am, which is not that much, but you know, I'm part of a tech culture by virtue of being a podcaster that I would ever have encountered JavaScript or been asked to, to parse it at all or, or ever having, ever having met somebody who expected I would know something about JavaScript is so different from any previous technological um, evolution or innovation. Nobody at Boeing in 1955 went to a cocktail party Mm -hmm. and expected anybody there to know about building an airplane. Um, so, so I do feel like it's, it's a, it's a, I look forward to, I mean, I welcome our squid overlords, <laughs> but I also look forward to a time when your your the, the interface has, has, the, there's been a renewed focus on the part of internet land, computer jockey land, a renewed focus on the front end. And I don't mean the front end, like garage band. But like there are, there are systems we use each and every day. And, and I, you know, again, I hear the, I hear the chorus of voices saying, all you have to do is go into the, into the search bar and type what you want to find. And it, and that thing pops up immediately. Like years and years ago, I was, uh, when I was walking across Europe, I ended up one night in the town of Freckenhorst. Freckenhorst sounds like I'm making it up, but it's yeah. really a, a, a tiny little town to the east of Munster. And I ended up in Freckenhorst and I'm walking around. It's, it's a little place. And I hear some, I hear some oompa music and I follow the oompa music and it's right during Schutzenfest. And every town I was going to uh, in the, every time I was in, in the, you know, in the 10 days around this Freckenhorst moment, it was Schutzenfest the entire time. And Schutzenfest is, uh, Schutzenfest in Scheisse is, uh, it literally means shooting fest festival. Uh, but it's sort of, it's another one of these events in Germany. That's, you know, that just feels vaguely pagan where it's about hunting and they've put all this, uh, I mean, it's, it has a, a very nationalist vibe, right? There's actually like goose stepping, uh, as part of it. And everybody's wearing their little German hats and their later hosen. Right. And it's about hunting birds or whatever, but it feels very connected to something in the German culture and spirit. That's very, very old. That's pre-Christian. It's like, yes, here we are. It's early summer and we are celebrating the hunt. So I hear this oompa music and I follow the oompa music around a wall. And here are all these people in their later hosen and they are drinking some beer and they're playing oompa music and they're marching <laughs> around. And I walk into this little, uh, gated yard and somebody comes over and they're like, what are you doing here? And I said, Schutzenfest because that, cause I knew that and they laughed and I said, I'm an American and I followed the Oompa tubas and they said, well, this is a closed party for Schutzenfest and Heron 
but um, you're welcome to come hang out with us because you're funny American in a funny hat. And so I spent the whole night there uh, watching Schutzenfest men get drunk and, and they actually did form up at one point drunkenly into uh, marching ranks and they marched past the big house, which I initially took to be the city hall or a museum or something. But it turned out it was the manor house of the aristocratic family that once upon a time would have been the dukes of this area. Uh, the Werendorf, Werendorf area. And the duke or the prince or the count or whoever he was and his family, and he was a very handsome, uh, very... They were, they were very beautiful people, um, very cultured appearing. They actually came out on the balcony of their manor house and the Schutzenfest men of the town marched past and as they, in review, and as they marched past the balcony, they went into goose stepping, which I had never seen in real life, which I thought was something related to you know, Nazism or fascism at least. But in this instance, it was clearly some kind of old Roman empire thing Weird. that had been brought to the Germans when the Romans fought them, you know, in, uh, when they were the barbarians, like this was, this was the strangest thing I'd ever seen here. They are, they're marching around drunkenly. Oompa, oompa. And as they go in front of the, the goose stepping, wow. And, all the drunken Schutzenfesten men who are now my best friends were like, la, 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 explaining everything. And as they got drunker and drunker, they started talking about Hitler. It was a very strange night. But at one point, I met the young princes. And I was fascinated by them. They were late teenager, 19 and 17. They were actually tending bar uh, for the men of the village. And they were exactly as you would expect young aristocrats to be like they were. They looked like the Kennedys. They were handsome and fit and preppy. And you assumed that they went to school in Switzerland or something. And they spoke impeccable English. And they thought that I was hilarious, you know, that I had come to their front yard for this party. Well, ever since then, because I'm not immune, Dan, to feeling excitement when I'm in the presence of European aristocracy. Oh, you know, this is part of my whole, uh, weird world of interest Mm -hmm. and particularly like the German aristocracy, which was all delanded in 1918 or 1919. Um, so none of them, you know, there is no, uh, house of Hohenzollern anymore, or, I mean, there is a house, right? But they're not, they don't have. What, what don't, is that they, house of Hohenzollern? They were the that? they were the princes of of uh, Prussia, and like Kaiser Wilhelm was of this house, right? The, they're all the houses of the royal houses of Germany. They're all the dukes and the counts and the margraves and so forth. And they all, you know, they lost their claim, but they're still royal families or aristocratic families. A lot of them are cousins of Prince Charles. They're part of the succession for the British throne, but they live in Germany and they're not, you know, it's the same as the French aristocracy. They don't like Louis XIV 
still has relatives in France and they still call themselves the Baron of, of, you know, Mets or something, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they, you know, there's, they're not ever going to ascend to a, to a throne, but I'm fascinated by that world. And I, and when I, I'm fascinated by it just like from reading, but when you're actually in the presence of somebody whose name is count von Fritzen von feather, (laughs) feather face von, you know, der Blitzenstein, it's like, wow. So when you get married, it's probably going to be to some Italian Royal house in order to maintain this crazy system. So I was thrilled. I was kind of thrilled to meet these teens and I actually met the, the Baron or whoever, but ever since then I've tried to figure out who they were. Like what the hell were they doing in Freckenhorst? If you drove through Freckenhorst in a car, you would say this town doesn't even have a Seven <laughs> Eleven, and you'd keep moving. There's yeah. like, it's just one of a million villages in Germany. But here are these glamorous people living in this beautiful house in Freckenhorst. And you know that that house has been there for several hundred years. And they're the people of this region. And maybe they will marry an Italian. Maybe that kid will marry an Italian. But it's some, it's some world of class and privilege that I don't understand. But I've tried to find out who they were. And then after a while, after 10 years of trying to figure out who they were and everywhere you went looking for the people of, you know, the royal family of Freckenhorst, there was, I could find nothing, right? It's not like it was in any encyclopedia. No. And I forgot about them. I stopped thinking about them. Well, earlier this morning, for some reason, I don't even remember what started the process, but I was... I was back reading about the Hohenzollerns as I like to do. And I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) How do you spell spell that? H O H E N Hohen Zollern Z O L L E R N. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. That's how I pronounced it forever. Hohenzollern. Uh, I was reading about them. I don't know why I find myself reading about them. And I thought, wait a minute, the castle of Freckenhorst. And so I put it into the title bar of my Google and it's still a little bit of a, it's still a little bit hard to find exactly what's going on. But eventually I real, I, I came to the family von Westerholt and the family von Westerholt is the family that lives in the castle of Freckenhorst. And right as we started talking today, like when you dialed, when you called me, Mm -hmm. I had arrived at the Wikipedia entry for the Vesterhalt, uh, Adels Geschlicht. And I was just about, and the, the problem is the Wikipedia page is in German. So I was just about to click on translate. Mm hmm. And then you called, but, uh, but here I am. Right. And, and now Google is in a posture and I've Googled them before and found nothing. Right. So finally we have reached a point where enough information has entered Google that I can find that I can finally find the Westerholtz and find out who the fuck they are and what exactly, when I tell this story of, should I call him count count von Westerholt or what? 
but but it reminds me that there's like the 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 invisible 90% of the iceberg of what we know is probably a good portion of it is not going to make it it's never going to make it into google and it's never going to exist it's not going to make it into the future like somebody decided that the Vesterholtz warranted a Wikipedia page. They, they didn't put it in English. It has to be translated by the, by the bleep bloop. Right. But somebody made that decision. That was, that was not, the computer didn't do that. Somebody was like, there's no Wikipedia page on the Vesterholtz. Well, I should make one, but there's so much shit that no one's ever going to feel that about that. 20 years from now, what that will effectively mean is that that stuff ceased to exist because the books that have it, the books that have that information, they're going in the pyre, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, books even now are, are mostly decorative. Nobody's reading. I mean, only scholars are going into the stacks and Going for, and I think the reason there's a, a Vesterholt page is that there are still living Vesterholts. But for all those things, all those trails, even the trails that led up just to now, that are still alive now but won't won't survive the purge, uh, they'll be gone. And it's and it's weird to think because the because the reality of books was. 600 years and longer. If you, if you count illuminated manuscripts, Mm -hmm. but when we think about a time before books, it's a, it's just a a kind of a blank to us. We still don't know what the hieroglyphics mean. Exactly. Right. We still never found the Rosetta stone. So 99% of, of human history is a blank to us, but for the last thousand years let's say we've we've been leaving a record and we know about stuff and so that last thousand years is much more colorful to us but we're at that threshold right now where it's an aperture and what doesn't make it through will be like prehistory and that's profound or that's that's a significant moment in human in our in in human life yeah and those decisions are being made very uh whimsically if i wanted to put up a website about some weird company that made eyeglasses from 1940 to 1970 i could do it um there only there might only be a hundred people in the world that know about that company anymore. The grandson of the person who started it. But I mean, just look at my dad's life. If I don't put him online somehow, and I have by virtue of these podcasts, sure. He he will live on. Yeah. Right. Um, but if I'd failed to do that, he'd be gone forever. There was no, there was no element of my dad online. 
And why would anybody care? But that's not true. Now, every living person, every person born today will have an online life that potentially will live forever. And I guess that process and multiple like processes aren't really being examined as much as um, like the user end agreements. We're we're spending so much more time (laughs) thinking about user end agreements, thinking about um, how to monetize apps than we are about the fact that we're at a, a massive moment in history. And there's nobody, maybe Steve Jobs was thinking about this. I don't, I don't get the sense he was And I don't think Elon Musk is either. There is no, there is no chief esthetician or ethicist. And sadly it's because there's no money in it, Mm -hmm. but that's the work that needs to be done now. And I'm not doing it because I don't know how to put up a website. 